Writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. For writers aspiring to publish traditionally, there's nothing more mysterious than what a literary agent looks for when representing an author. Is it the writing? Is it the platform? Is it the cultural relevance? Is it the connections? Is it a killer query? Of course, there are more questions like when should you start the querying process and what can you expect from an agent? To answer these questions and more, today, Rob Lewis, a Journey 66 writing coach who's sitting in for Dave, and I are interviewing seasoned literary agent Miriam Altshuler. Miriam began her career at Russell and Vulcaning, where she worked for 12 years with such writers as Ann Tyler, Eudora Welty, Joseph Campbell, and Nadine Gordimer. In 1994, she established her own agency, which she ran for 21 years until she joined. De Fiore and Company in 2016. Miriam specializes in adult literary and book club fiction, narrative nonfiction, and books for children. She's particularly interested in finding emerging and underrepresented voices, and she loves reading and representing books that focus on diversity and explore the experiences of BIPOC people. We're so excited to have Miriam with us today. Welcome, Miriam. We're so happy to have you. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So you have been a literary agent for a very long time. I think over three decades. I did a little bit of research. <laughs> Can you tell us about your journey to becoming a literary agent and acting as a literary agent and what has changed over the decades in your role of being a literary agent or has not much changed at all? Well, I got into it. It was my first job out of college. I was an English major and I actually thought, well, I love working with people and I thought about getting into the publishing world. And I thought about social work and realized in social work, I needed to go back to get a master's and I wasn't ready to go back to school. So I got into publishing and very thankful that I talked to people who really asked me the questions about what my strengths are and what I wanted to do and what my role in the book world would be. And I think it really came about that I really was a people person. And so what I love to engage with is literature, but also the people aspect. And I think back when I started, there was much more of a, of a line between what an editor and, a, and an agent does. And the editor was firmly the editor and firmly published the book. And the agent was the one that kind of found the writer and did the business. But we really were the kind of go-between between the editor and uh, the publisher and the and the author, but for, you know, we were represented the writer. And I think there really always has been more of a people aspect in the agentine side of things. I think the way that the world has changed is that there's so much pressure to publish more books. And I think the level of writing and book publishing has really been raised. I think there's so much more work for everybody for every book to be published. 
that it is more and more important that a book be much more finished now when we're selling it than it ever was before. And certainly when I started 30 plus years ago. And so I think my role as bringing a stronger editorial hand has changed a lot. I've really had to take on more of that editorial role than I feel like was necessary, you know, when I started or even 20 years ago. And I think that I also have to be much more of a support and a much more of a helper and teacher with authors to kind of really position them for publicity and marketing, even though those things happen through the publisher. So we've always been the liaison. We've always been somebody who has supported the author. But I think we've taken on kind of more of the kind of of a role of what editors then do in a, at an even higher level. So you're, you're engaged with them. So you must have seen something in their pitch, in their query, and also in like the first chapter or in a manuscript. How do you work with authors to get their piece to the next level where it is ready for publishing? Can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Well, I think for with every author, every journey is different. I think every person is different and their yeah. needs are different. I can... I can have a book that comes in that is so polished and amazing that it's doing either a line editing or saying, wait, this one character needs X and it can be one revision and you're ready to go. I have other books that I've done five, six, seven rounds to really get Mm -hmm. something, you know, so much of editing is a bit of that kind of, I mean, people always use this idea, but it's the peeling of the onion. You kind of peel one thing that kind of works out, but then you've got another thing that also either comes through where you weren't as worried about it when you were needing to deal with this. So the amount of editing, the amount of time, how an author works, some people, I think, working on a conversation can be most helpful. With others, you need to do more line editing or more of an editorial letter. So I think one of the things about being an agent, I think one of the things I love about being an agent is a bit of a chameleon. You're kind of, you, you, there are things we need to do, but the way we do it and how we do it and what the author's needs can change. And I think a good agent really responds to the author as much as anything else and what their needs are. We did a little bit of research and some interviews that you did, and you're talking about the manuscripts and the, the books, the proposals that really get you there they have to have a story that really interests you. Can you tell us what the essence of a great story is? Because we talk about this a lot with our audience and we try to really help our audience think through the elements of great story writing, but can you help our audience with your, with with an understanding that you have through all these years? (laughs) It's so hard. And, you know, I mean, I think there's, there's books that I've taken on that nobody, other people haven't. And I think there are voices that I respond to. I mean, everybody turns things down. You send something out and editors turn things down. And one of the things about publishing and certainly with fiction and I, and, and memoirs too, I, I, I really, even though memoirs are nonfiction, I think they firmly fall a little more in the fiction idea because you have to really write the whole book versus a narrative nonfiction book, which you can do a proposal. And it's so much about the story as well as the writing. And so I think that I mean, for me, first and foremost, it's voice. I just have to connect to that voice. And I want that voice to shine. I want to kind of feel like this author really knows who her character or his characters are. The story, I think, these days in particular, 
we really need a pitch. We really need to know how to see a book, think about a book. Everything has gotten harder selling books, especially with COVID, trying to get through the noise of the world. These days, I think, especially with fiction, it's very hard to break out a new writer. And unless it gets a book club pick of some kind, thank God for how great those (laughs) books are doing. But it can be very hard to be found in the rest of the world. So we really, you know, I say to authors, I do a lot of writers conferences, and I say, when you're trying to really pitch your book, think about that one, two, three sentence pitch that really grabs you. Go and sit in your local bookstore or sit on Amazon and read the flap copy. Like spend like literally two hours reading flap copy after flap copy and think about what it is about those pitches that makes you want to read a book. And some of them will work for you. Some of them don't. Everybody wants something different from a book, but there's a hook in there. There's something that really says to you, wow, I really want to know what happened. Or for me, a lot of times it's something I haven't seen before. That's the, that's the big thing. As an agent, you're sitting here with all your queries. I, I get a couple of hundred a week. I think I get a lot because I'm a generalist. I do fiction. I do nonfiction. I do women's book club. I do literary. I do children's and the middle grade YA. So I do get a lot of queries, whereas I think a lot of agents these days can be more of a specialist. I think it's easier these days to be a specialist. I'm not going to say one is better than the other, but I came up in a time where being a generalist was more common. And so... I'm reading through a lot. I need something to grab me. What have I not seen before? What can I learn from? What is out there that just grabs my attention? And it's going to be the story. It's going to be the voice. It's going to be the pitch. It's going to be somebody really being thoughtful about how they write their query, that they understand the business as well. I mean, I think one of the things that writers need to understand is publishing is a business. It's become more of a business. We really need to be able to sell books. And the author is part of that team. It's no longer, I write the book, you sell it to a publisher, the publisher sells it. And so we need to see that they understand how you pitch a book, how you pitch yourself. And I don't care if somebody has no experience, but I need them to be thoughtful about how they come to me. And that's not writing an email that has a hundred other agents in the CC or in the two, I want them coming to me because maybe they heard a podcast I was on. Maybe they saw me at a writer's conference. Maybe they read one of my author's books that they loved and feel it's either similar in the same area as what they're writing, or they just like the way the acknowledgement was. But write to me personally, give me a reason why you're writing to me and make that introduction, I'm much more prone to respond to somebody who has given me a thoughtful introduction than somebody who's sending an email out to 2000 agents. I know that you talked about some, some other caveats, other things that writers should be aware of when they're pitching an agent. Is there anything else that you want to include in that list of things to not do like a total turnoff? To me, having any kind of grammatical or spelling mistakes, really being thoughtful. One of my pet peeves, and I can't tell you how many times I read this, is I have written a fictional novel. In my mind, that person doesn't really understand. Oh my gosh, yeah. You know, I, I see this all the time. I think somebody who writes a, in, an email that is really long because 
I read queries at, on the nights and weekends. I work all day. This is my time. And so you better grab me. Don't take up too much of my time. Don't write a long synopsis. It should not really not be more than two paragraphs, three short ones at the most. Be respectful. Anybody who's going to be respectful in this way is going to be respectful on the publishing side of things and having that kind of respect of time. And also, to me, if you have to go on and on and on about what your book is, oftentimes I, I do a lot of writers' conferences. And the writers who really know how to pitch their book, really say what it is about, their books are much more finished and focused. People who can't really figure out how to talk about their books are still finding their way through. And that can come out in a query. And that is kind of something I look for. And I, in a query, also going back to the kind of flat copy is I want to understand what the heart of the book is. It's not just, it's about a boy and a girl but it's a boy and a girl and it explores X. I want to know what the author sees the book being about because A, that tells me something about how I may see it. And it also makes me think that they really understand that a book has to have a heart. It has to have a point. It has to really explore something. It's not just a story of two characters. That doesn't work in the same way anymore. What is voice, I guess, first, because that's so intangible. And I don't think that people really understand what it is. Can you talk about that? I mean, I think there's very voicey novels. You don't want a novel that's heavy handed and you see the author telling the characters what to tell us because they want to make a point. Yes. But what you love is when you hear different voices. I love like multi-voice novels, but each one has to be separate. You have to be able to close your eyes at the beginning of each chapter and you know which character is talking to you without seeing the heading. But I think that what a lot of what we're looking for now are these books that have a really different connection and a different way of telling a story. I mean, I, two of my clients that I think about is one when Jill Santopolo sent me The Light We Lost, which was a yeah. huge bestseller and a Reese Witherspoon pick. And this was a book about first love. I mean, how many books about first love have we all written? Right. But there was something so different. And the voice of this book just shined. I mean, she just found a way to capture the, the challenges, the beauty, the heartbreak, but she did it through the voice of the character. She kind of backed up in time to tell a story and it was very unusual and it was very beautiful and it would really tugged at your heart. And then my client, Donna Freitas, who had just been writing only nonfiction for years, we'd been working together over 25 years, 20, 25 years wrote her first novel, The Nine Lies of Rose Napolitano. And it was kind of a sliding door Russian doll book about whether or not she want, the main character Rose wanted to have a child. And she was grappling with this. And she, it wasn't that there was a right or wrong in this. And what she came to feel that there were nine versions of what it can be like to be a woman deciding hmm. whether or not to have a child. And so she wrote this kind of sliding door kind of look at nine different ways that life could happen for Rose. But she kept Rose's voice so consistent in each way that Rose decides to proceed. And it was just, it was voice because she had that voice of Rose and she held it. 
but it was also a really smart, interesting way to tell a story that was very complicated, but also something we sometimes have kind of seen before in the sense of, do we, don't we want children? That's so rich. And I, so many people write books because they have a story to tell. And that's why I think there are so many memoirs, right, coming out because everybody wants to impact the world with their story. And we live in a very story driven world and culture. But what I hear you saying is if you're going to tell that story, really think about how you're going to tell it and really think about if you can, it's not just the characters, but even like the structure and how are you going to get at that? Right. The structure is big. And, and in terms of memoir and, and novels too, sometimes people feel like they need to tell the story because of they have something to say. But if it's really too personal, and this can be for a memoir, but it can also be, happen in a novel, especially if somebody's trying to work through something that happened in their lives in a novel. I look at memoirs, if, if a memoir is about a big thing and has too much of a funnel in, so it becomes so personal that we can't identify with it, I don't feel it works. Hmm. It's for me, the novels that take something s- smaller, something that really happened, a turning point, something that they're, you know, somebody's grappling with and opens it up in a bigger way hmm. that I, even whether or not I'm grappling it with my life or want to kind of see into it. I think that is a, the way that I like to look at memoirs, the way that I want the memoirs that I want to read. And I think sometimes people are just get too personal and don't understand how to make something more universal. But I think the, the memoirs that span the life, thinking about like a Frank McCord or yeah. thinking about even Educated, which was, it's one of my favorite memoirs, those span a life and those have to have a theme so yeah. that you understand how to pick and choose what it is you're telling in your life. Because so often you read all this stuff, if it spans someone's life and you're like, but this isn't central to the story you're telling. You really have to think about that story. Otherwise, you're really, the memoirs I think that are working more are the ones that are gr- grappling with an idea, a topic, something that they're exploring, and then they can find their way through their life t- in a way that has that moment. But right. it's, it, it's, it's a lot of understanding what to pick and choose and write about and how to tell it but we need to see the bigger picture. We need to understand how it touches outside of your own situation. I was reading an an, an interview that you gave that you said you connect with writing that that makes makes a difference, that is concrete and helpful. Can you you explain what that means to you? You know, how it's, what what is writing that's that's actually helpful and that (laughs) does make a difference? (laughs) I think all writing makes a difference in somebody's life. So as I've gone through my career and really think about the books that I respond to, both that I represent and that I read, it's books that really have a heart. And I think that a book that really has a heart can make a difference in the way that I see the world. And I think in these days in particular, I want to see the world in a better way. And so I look for that. And I like dark. I like complicated. Mm-hmm. I like psychological But I think we all learn from how we grapple with things that are both beautiful and hard. But I want to feel changed after I read a book. I want to feel that I learned something I didn't know before or that I've seen the world in a different way. 
I think part of the reason I love being a generalist too, is that I, it, to me, it's the writing and the story. It's not what a book is. So I look for something again, it, it circles back to even what we've talked about a voice. I haven't heard a, a writer who I just feel is so commanding and really brings a perspective to something that I have read before that I haven't seen that perspective or just makes me think at a level that feels either new or different. And I think, again, everything in our business is so subjective and that's why we love it. But that's why one agent will say yes and you might not hear from another. And why when I send something out, one editor says yes and one. It's not just whether or not a book is publishable. It's working on a book from start to finish can be anywhere from two to five, even five years. And so, I mean, I've worked on books for 20 years, but you have to feel both that you can take that journey for that length of time and still love something even more when you come out of it, or you have a vision for helping a writer get something. And sometimes I feel like there's a book where somebody will see how to fix this or know what to do with it, but I don't. And I think a lot of it is about vision too. When especially new writers who have never written before and they're querying agents for the first time, when should they start the querying process? And then a follow-up to that is when should they give up on the querying process? When <laughs> when are when do they get so many no's that it's an indication that their idea just isn't sharp enough and they need to they need to pivot? Can you give us some insight into that? This is a really important question. And the first part is the most important. And that is that I do feel that we live in a bit of a write and send world and mentality of email. And so I think that we don't really, again, I grew up in a time where there were typewriters and people wrote drafts and drafts. And it was a time where everything was honed to a kind of a, a, a certain level. And I think that people need to understand how important revisions are. I always feel Anne Hood gives some of the best lectures on revisions. I've heard her speak a few times, and I'm sure there's something on the internet about it. But you write something, you put it aside for a week or even three months. I mean, in in terms of a manuscript, definitely it should be put aside for months or a month at least. Even a query letter, you want to write it, put it aside, look at it again, put it aside. Can you cut it down? Can you hone it? Are you saying what you want to say? But I think that a book has to be finished. I think both the query has to be perfect and the, and the manuscript. And so often somebody says, well, I'm finishing something. It's like, well, why are you wasting my time now? I have all these queries. You're now asking me to answer you twice if I'm interested. So Finish your book, make sure it's ready, make sure you've done. I know there's, it's always that hard thing. When do you say something's finished? Because you can keep writing it. But I think as a writer, you have to learn to say it's done. Not that, oh, it's all I can do. And now I need to find an agent. No, it, in your eyes, it needs to be done. And that doesn't mean that you won't take revisions and editorial advice, but you've taken it as far as you can. And that's when you start the query process. And that's when you use those editorial and revision skills to make sure that your query letter is as good as it can be and has the heart of the book. And it clearly says what it is about and also tells what you need to say about you in terms of 
what you've done. Again, your bio may not reflect anything that that's important to me, and that's fine. But if you have things like you've attended certain conferences, or you're a part of different writing groups, or you've had stories published, you know, all those things are helpful for us to, or if a book is about a psychologist and you're a psychiatrist, tell me that. But I think that really make sure something's ready because I, I think agents can see through things that aren't. And if you aren't getting responses, and unfortunately COVID has kind of created a no news is a no versus getting responses. We're huh. also, I mean, COVID has made our lives so much busier. So we've had to in some ways cut down. I mean, I have a bounce back. So everybody knows that they, I got it. And if I want to see something, I will respond. If I don't want to see something, I just, I, I can't respond anymore, unfortunately, but at least I, my bounce back tells people that, that I did receive the query. It could be that the book isn't saying what it needs to say, but it could just be that the query needs to really be rewritten. And maybe you're not, maybe the writer isn't creating that pitch that is speaking to us. So part of it is, are, is an agent responding to the pitch? The second part is, are you getting through to the agent? You're sending the manuscript and then you're not finding an agent. And then it, it could be that the book isn't what we're looking. It's just not ready or it's not good enough or it's not what people are looking for. I mean, there's the, always the famous story. I queried 50 agents and then I sold my book. So don't get discouraged, but if it's not working, something has to be relooked at. So you mentioned that you, as an agent, you expect the manuscript to be done. I assume that's for fiction and memoirs. I read that with nonfiction, it's typically all right to have one or two chapters done. Would you agree with that? Can you? Yes, yeah. for, for a narrative nonfiction, you know, kind of history, self-help, any, anything that's not a memoir, I think in general, you really need a thorough proposal, maybe 10 to 20 pages that has an, over, an overview that we can read and absolutely know what the book is about. The point of a proposal is you read that and you can see the whole book. A lot of time with nonfiction, there's a lot of research and a lot of people don't need the advance to write the book and do the research. So an overview, a chapter table of contents, chapter breakdown, maybe a paragraph or two explaining what each chapter is going to be, a marketing section so we know what else has been published in the area, what are the competitive books, what are books that support the fact that this book could work. Don't when you're writing competitive titles, don't put down other books, but you can just say these are books that have either worked or you felt only focused on this and your book focuses on that. And then a bio and any kind of, if you're doing nonfiction, we're looking for somebody hopefully that has a platform that can support yeah. the book. So who do you know? What, what would help sell a book? You can no longer, especially nonfiction, expect a publisher to be the sole way a book is sold. We're, they're going to look at this as a partnership. And so bring to the table how you can help, what are the organizations, the people you know, how you can get blurb, so forth. And I think if you're a new writer and you haven't written a book before, you really should write two, two chapters. I think if you're a more seasoned author, you can certainly write one chapter. The memoir has to be finished. The memoir has to be finished. Unless you're some huge presence in. Right. 
That's great advice. I've never heard anybody say that. And I, that's, that's a huge piece of insight. Well, so I think memoirs read more like a novel and you can't right. sell a novel on a partial anymore. Again, unless you're a published author. We, we talk about this all the time that you can't expect publishers to sell books for you anymore. We just don't live in that day and age and they are looking for that partnership and they're on to the next author by the time you may be gaining steam with <laughs> selling some books, yeah. right? You have like about six weeks to really gain some momentum, but then it's up to you. And, and we always like to say, like you said, that it's important to have a platform, but ultimately you have to have such a convincing piece of writing that people will want to share it because it moved you, right? Which goes back right. to what you're saying. And so it's both and you have to have that platform, but you also have to have something so convincing that people on your platform would want to share it. A lot of how books work, you can have a cover, a review on the cover of the New York Times book review, and it doesn't sell copies. Wow. But if you have a book that people are talking about, that's what sells. It's got to kind of gain that talkability. It's, it's a challenge to be discovered these days. There's a lot out there vying for our attention. So it does feel these days that a few books are getting a lot of attention. A lot of books are not getting the attention. So you never know what's going to break something out. I mean, that's the beauty of our business. That's the, that's the thing that there's always that dangling carrot, like how, what is going to work? And we love the unobvious the, the stories about books that aren't as obvious and how they break out. But oftentimes it is that word of mouth. It's the word of mouth and often what's going on culturally that we could never predict in the moment. Right. Sometimes it's just timing. It's not, it's not trying to jump on a fad or a bandwagon. It's creating it yourself. But a lot of times that is out of your hands. It just something in the world is happening and all of a sudden your book is there. Miriam, this has been so rich. Thank you so much for your time. This has been, wow. I mean, you've given us a, <laughs> a workshop's worth of wisdom in 30 minutes. So we thank you so much for your time and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful talking about books and there's so much good writing out there. We just want to figure out a way and help authors get to that point where they can get published. So thank you for the work you're doing as well. All right, Rob, before we sign off, let us do our word of the episode. This is a first time for you. And I, I typically go word first with words of the episodes. So okay. I will go first and then you can go second. So my word is dilettante and you spell that D-I-L-E-T-T-A-N-T-E, -T -T -E, dilettante. And it actually has its roots in Italian. It's not French. The meaning of dilettante is to pretending to be more of an artist than you're interested in or capable of being. So if your friend who likes to paint, but isn't an artist, they're a dilettante. So you're kind of like calling them a poser. But anyway, the etymology is really interesting to me because originally it meant lover of the arts, which is a really positive thing, but it came on, developed a negative slant when people became professionals in the arts. And suddenly, if you were just doing art as kind of like a, a side, you were a dilettante. You weren't really the real deal. So dilettante is my word. It seems like a really fancy word to say that you're a poser, but it's very elevated. So I, I'm going to try to start using that in my everyday vocabulary. My word is quixotic. Oh, that's a good one. One of those words that I think I know what it means. I've always thought it means peculiar and quirky. 
quixotic, but but it but <laughs> that's not exactly right. It means you're being exceedingly idealistic to the point you're being unrealistic and impractical. You're like your head in the clouds. And uh, nuance is a meaning. It also means when you're like that, you can be impulsive and unpredictable. You're not grounded <laughs> in reality. So it has its roots in, in literature. So it's a, it's a word that springs from the book and the character Don Quixote. He's the hero of the book by Miguel de Cervantes, uh, the ingenious Hidalgo Don Quixote of La Mancha. It's the name yeah. of the entire book, right? So this this word actually derived or, or, or arose from that that character who who demonstrates what that what that word actually means. So I guess to fully understand it, you'd have to read the book. Yeah, I guess so. Right? And I want to know why it's not quixotic. If it's Quixote, why is not, why do we say yeah. the hard X? That's Again, what I, I don't know. know. The English language <laughs> is strange. Like I, and I didn't I didn't I didn't find out why why you do say the hard the hard X. I'm pretty sure that's what you do though. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure quixotic, it is. Right? Yeah. So yeah. Quixote. <laughs> right. Although it sounds better, you know? Yeah. Quixotic. Quixotic. Well, Quixotic. we have two disparaging words that are actually yes. very lovely words. All right, Rob. Well, thank you so much for sitting in for Dave today. We had a great interview with Miriam. I'm loving it. Was time. it was so good. I'm looking forward to listening to the podcast and to it again. Well, I think that that is a wrap. Thanks for joining me today, Rob. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Rob Lewis sitting in for Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write.